Hello and welcome to the fourth in a new series of podcasts from the Entrepreneurs Forum, Talking Future, where we talk to the Northeast entrepreneurs about their work, their lives and especially their views on the future and how they're innovating as they plan ahead. I'm Yvonne Bell and today I'm speaking to Joanna Feely, who founded Trend Bible in 2011. After identifying that the market of trend forecasting, particularly forecasting trends at home, was underserved and set to grow dramatically. Today, Trend Bible forecasts the future of life at home, working with retailers and brands to help them predict what consumers want in two to five years' time. As CEO, Joanna sets the vision for Trend Bible and strategically directs the senior management team driving the company's growth with global brands in over 35 countries. Good morning, Joanna. Good morning, Ron. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Good, good. Can we start at the beginning then? And what I like to do is just to find out a bit of background so we can set the scene to where you came from and how you got to where you are now. So could you just give us a little bit of career background, you know, what your early days are, the early days of setting up the company and uh, what Trend Bible actually does? Yes, absolutely. Um, Well, I studied fashion design at at university and was convinced that I would love it and want to go and be a fashion designer. And whilst I was studying there, we were looking into the industry as a whole. And I learned about the trend forecasting industry, which sits behind the design industry, really, the fashion design industry predominantly. Um, And the trend forecasting industry is there to research the future and to understand how consumers will feel and think and shop in two to five years time Um, and then we sell our insights and our trend research through to fashion design companies, home interior brands. And so I didn't find out about the trend forecasting industry until I got onto my degree. It wasn't a career that I'd held in my mind for a long time. But as soon as I found out about it, I knew that it was something that I was really passionate about and really wanted to do. But it was a tiny industry at the time. I think there were only 200 jobs worldwide in trend forecasting. And I did speak to a careers advisor who told me that I had basically no chance of getting one of those jobs as a graduate (laughs) and that I should just go and, um, you know, do what I trained to do, which is at that point was to be a menswear designer. So I did take that advice on board. But in the back of my mind, I knew that somewhere down the line, I wanted to find out how I could get into this industry. And I just, um, I was quite a, a cheeky employee. I always tried to make sure that where there was Um, extra time in the day in addition to my design jobs I would always try and find some time to do a mood board or a color palette for some of the senior designers and I just made a bit of a pest of myself really I was very persistent Mm -hmm. and I remember in my first job my first job was actually in um, New York and I worked for a a menswear um, casual wear brand there and I remember my boss took me to one side and said "I, I can see what you're doing I know that you want to be a trend forecaster but I pay you to be a menswear designer but if you want to spend your spare time Time doing the extra work that the team clearly uh, appreciate, then you can kind of unofficially be our internal trend person. Was he saying, I'm not going to pay you for that? Yes, exactly. Which I didn't mind because actually... Um, I could I could stay late. I think we got free free pizza if we stayed late. So I actually got fed as well. And as a graduate, that that was all that mattered to me was to be doing something that I loved and that I was getting fed. So uh, <laughs> it paid off, and I was able to return back to the UK a couple of years later with a design portfolio and a trend forecasting portfolio. Uh, but it took a few years. It took another sort of five years for me to actually land a job as a trend forecaster uh, because they were just so rare, and I didn't have that that experience as a trend forecaster. So it was. 
a sort of a, a career that I, once I saw it, it was always in the back of my mind as to how I could go and do that job. It almost sounds like you took it on as a hobby, on a sideline basis. Yes, I did, really. Um, it's the sort of thing I can imagine that even if I'd never got my break, I probably would have been making mood boards and colour palettes in my spare time. It was something that I just completely loved. And once I learned about beyond the kind of the design application for trend forecasting and learned a bit more about the, the theory of it and the social economic sort of social science aspect of it, uh, where you start to learn about how people behave and what drives groups of people to change their behaviours and what makes the bravest people in society go first with the trend then it really started to connect two worlds for me one which was artistic and design driven and the other which was very much a sort of sociological interest and that's what makes it such a fascinating career because it's it's a real blend of art and science and when you started trend bible you weren't just focusing on uh fashion were you you, you broke out into other things yes i think really for me i knew that I wanted, I set up as a freelancer, first of all, as, as many businesses do. And I knew that I couldn't compete with some of those. There were a lot of large fashion forecasters with, you know, maybe thousands of people based all over the world. And I knew that as a one man band, I couldn't compete uh, with those kind of organizations. So I started to look quite early on for an, a niche in the market and I could see this was sort of 2008 just at the back end of the American housing crisis before really the recession had kicked in here but I could start to see that some of the behaviors I was observing were that people were staying at home more and eating out less there was already this sort of contraction of activities and that people's lives were changing and that home was becoming the center of their world and of course over the years that's kind of um, been absolutely true and at the moment of course we're in this kind of pandemic environment where home is pretty much the only place we're allowed to be yeah mm -hmm. so that's uh, it's almost a mimic of that but very much worse Yes, that's it. I think we've spent a lot of time looking at what are the similarities and differences between the um, Great Recession of 2008 and the implications that we're still working through really of the pandemic. And you'd be surprised how different they are actually. Some of the motivations behind uh, the way people are behaving are quite different at the moment. But as we move into maybe later in the year and we start to see whether we're going to be impacted with regards employment, I think that could start to have an impact on people's finances, which happened much earlier on in the in the uh, financial crisis yeah just getting back to uh starting trend bible uh how did you do that you, you went freelance first and then do you now employ a few people to um to do the work with you and how did you find those people because if you were quite rare they must have been too Yes, that is one of our biggest challenges is recruiting. So we have a team of 22 people now, um, most of whom are based in our head office. I think there's 18 of us based in our head office on normal day. At the moment, everybody's working from home. And then we've got a few people dotted around various different parts of the world. So we have somebody who's based in New York, and then we have a network of uh, trend scouts that are based everywhere from Spain to China to help us ensure that when we forecast a trend, we can be really clear on how that trend will shape shift in different geographical locations and that's useful for our clients who are predominantly large global corporates so they want to know whether a trend in the UK will be exactly the same when it hits down in the US for example um, so yeah and when we hire people in the old days I used to hire a lot of people from the local universities and train them from scratch and that was really how I got started on the journey of 
hiring people. And then over time, we've been able to attract people from all over the place, really. We had somebody from Austria join us. We've had a few people move up from London. We've had someone move here from San Francisco. So we're able to attract, because of the nature of the job, really attract people from all over the place to come and work with us. Because it is still quite a, an unusual and rare profession. And certainly in the north of England, uh, we are the only ones providing jobs in, in trend forecasting, mm-hmm. really. So, so you actually are ahead of, would you say you're ahead of the game? Um, and does that give you your USP? Um, I guess our USP is our specialism in the world of home, in the the future of home. Um, Many of our competitors still focus on fashion. And even if they do focus on home a bit, it's more of a sideline. Whereas for us, it's our bread and butter business. It's absolutely the core of of what we're about. So people tend to come to us because we understand home life and we understand family life. And we might get asked by a a toy manufacturer what the future of play is and what kind of environment parents are wanting to bring their kids up in. We might get asked by um, a, a laundry powder company what kind of fut- the future is of domestic chores and what kinds of scents um, people will be drawn to in the future for things like laundry powder and maybe what kind of ecological issues could be tied in with laundry powder. So we get asked a broad range of, of questions mm-hmm. really from a broad range of brands. Yeah. Would you say um, there have been many obstacles for you or do you think it has been not easy but it's you've kind of slipped through it because because there was nobody else there. Um, I wouldn't say it's been easy. I think it's there are always challenges. There are always challenges. And I think in the early days, it really mattered that we were based in Newcastle and we weren't in London. And lots of people used to flag that to us and say, we don't understand why you're based in the Northeast. And wouldn't it be better as a trend agency to be somewhere that has its finger right on the pulse and you can go to maybe 20 or 30 galleries in an afternoon versus only having a handful. So there were all sorts of challenges. And obviously the world of technology has enabled us to to and, and travel as well has enabled us to do all of the things that we would have been able to do had we been based in New York or Paris or London, where most of our competitors are based. And did you have any thoughts that maybe you should or did you like, do you like to be where you are? I love being where we are and I always wanted to be here. And that's the thing that makes me most proud of what I've done is that is that we've got 22 jobs here in a discipline that that I know is special and I know the people that come to to work for me love their jobs and they love to be trend forecasters and we have about 30 um, interns a year that join us we have so many interns that come and join us and they go off and work in amazing jobs either in trend forecasting or in design so I always wanted to be here and I always felt that I was kind of providing an opportunity for graduates that maybe I didn't have I maybe wouldn't have left the region I maybe would have traveled around a bit but I I certainly felt that when I graduated that I had no option I I knew that if I wanted a job I needed to be in London or New York and um, and I didn't really think about where I wanted to be I just knew where I had to be and so what's been really important to me is for the people who do want to stay in the northeast that that they can and they can have a really amazing creative career here i think that's probably borne out by the fact that we know now that anybody virtually can work from home as long as it's not hands-on manufacturing 
Yes, that's it. That's the, the beauty of it, really. And, and for us, we can hire trend forecasters to do an hour or five hours work for us. They could be based in Japan. We can dial people in from anywhere. The technology now is completely amazing. And it doesn't matter where we are in the world, really. Uh, I've always thought it was an advantage to be in the Northeast. We have a, a bit of a phrase, and it's this bit of a tongue-in-cheek phrase when we're doing our forecasting. And I always get my team to think about a trend from Shoreditch to Shields Road, because we're not very far away from Shields Road in um, the Usburn. And it is really that very realistic commercial eye about how trends emerge. If you want to tap into a trend that goes mass market, which most of our clients do, they're not interested in a trend that's only for a handful of very cool people. They want to know when it's on every shelf in every store. And so we have this sort of phrase about from, from Shoreditch to Shields Road, because a trend may, may well start in Shoreditch, yeah. um, but actually it's only become mass market if it ends up on Shields Road. And I'm really interested in getting my team to think about how people live and what makes them different and um, how the sort of socioeconomic elements make trends shape shift and how it makes them apply to certain groups of people. Yeah. Now that that must have been a huge thing for you to open your mind to because you know if you lived in New York and I can imagine the sort of people that you were mixing with it wasn't it was wasn't like where you are now and that's not a that's not being degrading to people that live around here because obviously I do but it's uh, it's just a, a different way of thinking isn't it? and that's obviously what you're trying to make your people think about which is good. Yeah, it's just different perspectives. And the more different perspectives you have as a trend forecaster, the better, the more sort of divergent the group thinking is, then the, the more robust your, your trends are. Because if you only have two people working on a trend and they've got the same socioeconomic background and the same thoughts and they agree with each other all the time and they don't challenge each other, then you end up, um, you can really easily end up putting a, a trend out there that hasn't really been well-rounded and hasn't been vetted appropriately. Sometimes instead of just our internal team and our trend researchers starting the research and dissecting the trends and building the trends, we take a different approach, which is to speak to customers who use the products and just get them to chat about the product. It's not market research because we're not going to come away saying 60% of this audience of 5,000 people said this, but actually that's where some of the fascinating insights are. So people will say, I love this product, but actually what I really hate about it or what I wish it did or what I do to this product when I get it in my home because it doesn't function properly is I sellotape this bit on the end and I do this to it to make it function. And all of a sudden you think, well, that's it. There's a huge sort of innovation opportunity there that can only happen if you engage with the end customer. And so many brands that, that exist only think to the shelf, whether that's the physical shelf in a shop or the shelf of a, a sort of um, online shop. They think about, I've created the product, it's on the shelf, and the customer will go and choose between that product and a competitor product. And, and we don't do that. As trend forecasters, we think right through to the customer, taking that home, using it, putting it with other items. Um, and that's what we're really interested in is the, the relationship between the product and the end customer, not just thinking to the shelf. Can you tell us about um, a, a one that you, you predicted, I think you did, uh, about veganism? Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, that's one of my favorite trends. I went to a, uh, one of my favorite stories is I went, to, was asked to go to a, um, a conference, a food conference, and it was especially for sort of convenience store owners and wholesalers. And um, they were a tough crowd. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they weren't necessarily people who'd ever heard about trend forecasting before, and they were highly skeptical. Yeah. And I, I love a skeptical audience, I must say, because that gives you Challenge. the juiciest questions. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. And I was really challenged by somebody in the audience around one of my slides, which talked about veganism. 
this is a few years ago now, I think it's about 2014. And this guy sort of said, you know, thanks for the presentation, but I just don't believe you about the veganism thing. I think it's niche. I think it only applies to a tiny proportion of society. And uh, until that is in every convenience store on the corner of every council estate, which is where his stores were, he said, this is just not worth me thinking about at all. Mm -hmm. And so we, we track that trend um, as we, we do with all of our trends. We track them to understand the pace of them, to see how they shape shift, um, to monitor them, because there's no point just saying veganism is going to be big and leaving that as a statement. Our clients want to know, when should I act upon it? When does that trend become most ripe? And for between 2014 and now, I mean, obviously, I can't remember the exact stats on veganism, but it's a much bigger um, it has had a much bigger impact. We've got things like schools doing meat-free Mondays and just trying to consider a life with less meat in it is such a big part of, of what's happening culturally at the minute. And it's got a long way to go as well. So uh, yeah, that was, that was a trend that we'd spotted and we'd seen that people who we would, we would describe them as mavens. So people who go first with a trend, they make up a tiny percentage of society it's about two and a half percent of society but they're the people that really set the tone they change their behaviors they're not trying to set a trend they're just changing the way they do things and so we'd picked up on um these this group of mavens who were starting to influence the way that we consume meat and actually the lady that launched the veganuary campaign which was in january of 20 14 was somebody that we'd been monitoring at that point even for a couple of years so even the people that we're interested in really matter when it comes to trends yeah you haven't even mentioned the sausage roll yes well that that was when we knew that it had really peaked i think there was there was quite a bit of activity on our company whatsapp feed that day when the the greg's uh, vegan sausage roll got launched yeah. it's, it's it's so interesting to say you know that was really the the um the pinnacle of that trend yeah, going mainstream roll. yeah and the sales figures off that the vegan sausage roll really really was for me that was um veganism on every street corner which is what predicting. we've been um, yeah. uh -huh. predicting would happen. so I mean, we've got really, really in this time, we have to mention today and, and what, we've, what we've faced in the last six months or so and how, how you've had to completely think about uh, predicting. I mean, if, unless you've got a crystal ball, I don't know how you're going to do it. You must have some plan. We do. And, and actually, it's a method that we normally would use for longer term forecasts. So more often than not, we're forecasting about two years ahead. But occasionally, we get asked to forecast 10 to 15 years ahead. It is rare these days, but we do get asked. And when we forecast that far out, we have to rely on scenario planning. So we, we list out a number of scenarios and we narrow down to a couple. And usually a client would um, progress their business strategy towards a couple of scenarios rather than just one. When we're forecasting two years out, we can actually pretty much nail on what we think is going to happen. Now, of course, during current um, times when we've seen the pandemic, we've actually brought that methodology and that modeling of scenarios into our forecasting for short-term forecasts. Mm -hmm. And we've actually even been producing forecasts that are as short as six months out, which might sound silly, but based on what, of our, what our clients are telling us, they have got some immediate critical issues, whether that is trying to get um, raw materials to produce the goods in the first place, um, or whether they have um, issues with staffing, they have all sorts of problems. And so actually for them, just trying to get through the next six months and focus on that has become really critical. So we've had to change in many different ways and, and producing a, a variety of scenarios helps us identify what may happen. And of course, we have to think like that at the moment because the infection rate may go up 
think it's safe to say that we're going to have to treat the pandemic as something that happens in waves. And so we have to be responsive to um, waves that will happen. Mm -hmm. um, and even that's only become clear over the past maybe six to eight weeks. So it's a moving target. Yeah. And as with all trends, you've got to keep an eye on them. You can't just stick a pin in the map and wait for it to happen. You've got to track all of the time and check whether they're gaining pace, losing pace, um, whether they're engaging the audience in a way that you expected and whether they start to clash with other things. So say, for example, if you look at the pandemic at the moment, even just in terms of the equipment that people are using, all of the PPE and the face mask and how that is starting to trigger a debate about um, sustainability and you know how we might get those two elements to work together so we're starting to see more innovation in sustainable PPE and sustainable um, face masks and things like that. Yeah it's in the back of your mind that the global warming it's sort of gone on the back burner but it hasn't gone away. Yes and I think in times of emergency people have really just focused on sort of health and germs and yeah. Um, staying safe and, and fit and healthy and of course once that starts to calm down a little bit we remember that some of those values that we held dear beforehand that were already emerging like the ecological argument start to raise their head again and people start to to marry the two things together and that can often happen with trends they often don't sit on their own they start to blend and clash with other trends so to, can you just clear one thing up trend forecasting and trend spotting they're very different aren't they Yes, I would say so. Um, I think that trend spotting, uh, you know, we could all go out and find, you know, even if you look at sort of fashion, it's really easy to sort of sit in a, I used to do this with university students, sit in a lecture theatre and figure out, you know, how many people in here are wearing a yellow top and start to say, well, that must be a thing because I've spotted that trend. I've been able to identify that out of maybe 20 people, uh, five of them are wearing a particular colour. So trend spotting is, is an observational activity where you can just observe the things that are happening in the now and whilst that is useful it's useful technique it's not the same as being able to forecast there are different methods that we would use to be able to project out and um, figure out how a trend will adapt and will change in the future and as I mentioned scenario planning is one of the methods that we use to do that. And what's aesthetic DNA? Aesthetic DNA is really um, we sometimes get brands that come to us and they say um, we've, we've missed a trend our competitor did this trend they made a lot of money out of it we didn't do it for whatever reason and now you know we need to know what the next trends are we've got to be on the back of the next trend and um, that trend may or may not be appropriate for that brand it might be wildly off brand and so what we always ask our clients to do is pay attention to and describe the aesthetic DNA of their products so whether they're making a baby bottle or um, a game or maybe they make furniture there should always be something about that product um, that enables you to identify that it's come from that brand it should be really clear that it belongs to that brand and that helps brands think about which trends are right for them not every trend is right for everybody there could be hundreds of trends happening at any one time and a brand should never jump on the back of all of them because then it will it will lose its distinctive aesthetic qualities and the dna of what makes it visually um, identifiable yeah so that's sort of the, the bandwagon thing you don't just jump on the bandwagon to to sort of appease the, the current trend you, you want to do your own thing uh -huh. yeah especially in today's market where the consumer is so savvy i think people just see through those kind of activities and even um over the past few months we've had so many 
you know, I mean, you could, the, the sort of pandemic is one thing, but also lots of sort of social protesting around things like Black Lives Matter and a, a huge sort of a debate on gender as well. Mm -hmm. And actually, if people approach some of those really important topics in a way that just pays lip service to them, the consumer is very savvy now and the audience is very savvy and they will call that out and it will make you look worse than if you did nothing at all. Mm -hmm. So I think being able to think some of these bigger socioeconomic topics through and do something with depth and meaning is really important because we have you know platforms at our fingertips where we can start to express our distaste for something that a brand has done immediately so they know when they get it really wrong and when you've advised people have you ever got it wrong well the thing is with trend forecasting you should because we apply our trends to what a brand is about we shouldn't be able to get it wrong we should only be bringing trends to their attention that we feel that they can succeed at um what happens if they ignore you <laughs> they sometimes do they sometimes do yeah and it's happened before where we've said you know we think this is critically important for you to do you mustn't miss out on it we i know you can't see evidence of it in the market at the minute but you must trust us we know this is coming and this is this is our rationale for why we think that's coming and sometimes they just sometimes it's too big a leap or they just don't have the guts or because they can't see it in the now mm -hmm. they don't believe it's coming and then it comes and they they're, they're last to market you know, a lot of clients will say to us, well, we won't do that trend because we can't see other people doing it. We can't see people doing it. We had this years ago with, um, we recommended to a brand that they invested in dark gray decking paint and fence paint. They produced fence paint and decking paint. And we said, the next big color is dark gray. And they said, well, we can't really see anybody doing that. There's nobody really doing that. And we said, well, it's coming. It is coming. Um, and we knew that when we were speaking to people, the attitudes had shifted towards the use of this dark gray color outside, but the behaviors hadn't. So the way that people think and what their attitudes are sometimes leads for quite a long time before they'll change their behaviors. And so that's really the critical um, difference between what they think and what they do can sometimes be quite different. And it sometimes can trip people up if, um, if they wait for a behavior to be evident, sometimes they're too late to the market. If they'd waited for people to start painting their fences and decking dark gray, they wouldn't have had the product ready to go and somebody else would have monopolized that market and gone first. So there's definitely that kind of transition between what we would sort of call an, the attitude has to shift first and then the behavior and we are interested in the attitudes we've got so many interesting stories of of timings timing is absolutely critical when it comes to trends you can go too early if your audience is more traditional they're not going to want to be the first to market they might want to be nearer the middle or the end um so timing is everything we've got you know clients who produce everything from um bifold doors which obviously really peaked in their sales about sort of four or five years ago we've got a client that that was first to market with a bifold door but just too ahead of time and nobody wanted them so they stopped yeah. making them and of yeah. course the market picked up and they got left behind mm -hmm. so we have all sorts of stories about timings and and that that bit the timing uh you you've got to watch that because that is the place where you do where the risk is for getting it wrong it's not necessarily getting the trend wrong it's getting the timing right for the market the audience that wants it and as, as someone who, um, who forecasts trends in the home, 
do you follow or do you lead in your own home or do you just not? Do you not have time? Well, as you can imagine, we get exposed to all sorts of wonderful design on a daily basis. And we publish trend forecasts twice a year for home interiors, which are very, very highly visual. And every single time we publish one, it makes me want to redecorate my whole house because there's some yeah. gorgeous stuff in there. But of course, we're forecasting two years out. So inevitably, some of those ideas don't exist yet. So I'm terrible for sort of seeing a colour palette that I love in one of our trend books and not being able to get hold of any products in those colours. And of course, once that trend comes around, two years later I've moved on to the next thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a frustrating place to sit but I, I try and get a mixture and I, I decorate like anybody would I try and think of each room and how I want that room to feel and what activities happen in that room so at the minute obviously as you can imagine we have some we've had homeschooling and home officing happen, happening in the kitchen as well as all the usual activities in the kitchen and so that room has had to flex massively and I think a lot of people have, have felt this idea of like is my home now fit for purpose because it's got some expanded mm -hmm. uses that it didn't need to have before mm -hmm. and the, the way people have been purchasing recently I mean that must have made a, a big difference to how people manufacture and supply um, these these trends because they're, they're not getting them from the shops they're getting them online yes absolutely I mean the visual platforms specifically so things like Pinterest and Instagram are absolutely huge for the home interiors sector and people get so much inspiration there and of course you can shop directly from those platforms now so instead of you know maybe two or three years ago you would you would think about having um, some marketing budget to pay some influencers to take your pot of paint or your sofa and put it in their home and photograph it. And, and all of their followers would, would see that post and, and hopefully be drawn to the same products. Well, of course, now it's so much more democratized and somebody might only have a few hundred followers, but if they do something interesting in their decor scheme or they put colors together in a certain way, um, they become very influential and people really start to pick up and pay attention to that. And off the back of that, then you get the brands realizing that there's an opportunity and you get the press realizing that there's an opportunity for a story there as well so it's such an interesting time yeah. and what about uh, your favorite trend of the last few years have you is there anything that you thought yeah i really like that well one of the trends that i absolutely love and i remember at the time this was probably it was probably near the time that i set the business up i think it was maybe one of our first forecasts 2009 or something like that and we had a trend panel which we do every six months we host a trend panel we invite people from all sorts of different disciplines and backgrounds curators and designers and people who've written white papers on you know economics all sorts of things and somebody brought to the trend panel there had been a book that was published which was about a japanese concept called um shirin yoku which is forest bathing oh. and of course at the time we thought well that sounds completely out there forest bathing you know how does that fit with everything else that we're seeing we knew there was a, a connection to nature it was this about the start of the time that people were starting to things like allotment waiting lists had started to go through the roof yeah. and people were connecting to nature and buying plants for their home and, and, and inside of the home so we knew there was something happening there around this feeling of wanting to be more connected to nature and I just think, I mean, I spent last week in, um, it wasn't my holiday of, of choice, I must say, but it was my second choice of holiday, bearing in mind we can't go abroad. And I actually spent it in a wild camping in a wood with my kids. And I just remembered 
thinking back and I thought, well, if this isn't forest bathing, I don't know what is. Because it really was just sitting around a campfire amongst the trees, listening to the birds. And it really took me back to over 10 years of of thinking about that trend and thinking forest bathing. What on earth is this practice that's happening in Japan? And, um, And it's actually really taken off as a kind of spa retreat concept now. Um, so I think that's probably one of my favorite trends because it seemed so obscure and yet I think it's something that many people now would would say they do a little bit of they're trying to find that space in nature to recuperate and and feel that the pace of life is a bit calmer and older people could relate to it because that's probably where they what they did when they went on holiday camping with their family yes exactly and there weren't the the gadgets that we had I mean I like to take a hairdryer how do you do that <laughs> um there's definitely no hairdryer on my wild camping trip, i I'll bet there you. is not no <laughs> so from the, that kind of things that you've enjoyed looking at and, and um seeing what exciting trends do you think are starting to emerge now or can you not see that now because of what's been happening or is it clouded well I think, I mean, there are obviously a number of things that that will happen. There's never just one thing. But one of the most interesting things I think is that when times are tough, and again, we've got the the benefit of the sort of last recession in my sort of working career to to fall back on to reference this, but also other big impactful um, events like September the 11th, which had a really big impact on people's behaviours and emotions. Mm-hmm. It was the start of a, a new way of being. So we have a few examples of quite severe, dramatic events that impact on our behaviours and you know negative events that impact on our behaviours. And I think that for the home, what that often does is it helps us to think of the home as a place to be safe and to recuperate and retreat but also what we've noticed is people want their home to be a joyful place where they can express themselves so we've actually seen this really big shift after sort of 15 years of celebrating Scandinavian um, decor especially in the UK where we've had all of this grey and white decor and very pared back and very minimal we're starting to see a re- people really embrace colour and quite bold strong colours for the home things like cobalt blue um, in paint colour coming through and pinks and people starting to really want to splash a bit of color in the home and make it feel like theirs and you'll have noticed all of the things like the the typographical messages that people are putting on their walls now instead of maybe artwork they're putting motivational statements in frames and putting that on the wall that's all part of this idea of you know having positive phrases and positive colors and making the home somewhere that feels safe and happy and joyful i know you're not in fashion specifically but what about fashion then because that for for women in particular that's gone through a phase of very much the color and the florals and things which sort of hark back to the 70s do you think that was going to happen anyway and this is maybe going to happen more well I think with fashion it's going to be quite interesting because I think that if we I think a lot of it hinges on what the world of work will look like which so many of our forecasts are trying to map out what the future of work will look like because if people only need to go into the office a couple of days a week and they spend a lot of time at home where they're not having to wear the same clothes and dress up in the same way that they maybe would do you know men not having to wear a suit for example if they're working from home that has a really big impact on the type of products that people are going to be buying and wearing as their their sort of work wardrobe um so i think a lot of the forecasts that we've we are looking at at the moment hinge on what will work look like how many of us will get back to work full-time how many of us will work part-time from home um those kind of questions really 
impact a lot of what will happen in terms of not just the home but the, the what we'll wear as well yeah. and i suppose um the fact that we haven't been able to go out you know go yes. out to to parties or um you know even just socially it's it's sort of almost down dressing isn't it you just, yeah or do or, or do you think people have go mad and want to really dress up because they've uh, been deprived Possibly, yes. And I think, you know, things like the um, athletic and the sort of leisure market, you know, leggings, I think are probably the, I think I read an article saying that leggings are, leggings are the, the item of the decade or something like that. And I thought, oh, that sounds a bit depressing, but it's actually a really accurate reflection of what people are wearing. Yeah. Um, so I think things like sort of leisure could be very interesting. Um, but you're right, it might mean that when we do go out and we are able to socialise, that it means that that feels more special and that people want to wear something that makes them feel special. I saw somebody get out of a car the other day, just, just in Morpeth where I live, and it, uh, there's a, a restaurant, um, a big Italian restaurant, it's really nice, not overly posh, and this woman got out of the taxi and she had a full-length black uh, Lurex dress on, it looked lovely, uh, but it seemed overdressed, but I thought, no, why not? She's probably not worn that yes. in a year. So why not that's wear it? it? So uh, that's what I, that made me think of that. So, um, and even clothes that maybe you had that were special that you don't, maybe you save them for best. And I suppose the same goes with jewellery. Maybe people just think, well, what's the point in that? We've got to live life and we need to wear these things. If we love them, let's wear them. Let's start that trend then. <laughs> so we can. Um, so, and what, what are you looking forward to at the minute in your business? I mean, do you think you're going to be expanding because of the, the, the requirement for trend forecasting or how do you think it's going to go? Well, I think that what it's taught us, which I mean, so many I've heard this from so many people and so many entrepreneurs is that actually having had the reflection time in the pandemic, a lot of people were gearing up to make changes in their business anyway. And this has just accelerated and accelerated their, their behaviors. And I feel like that's definitely the case for me. There were things that I wanted to do with the business that were going to be in my three year plan starting from 2021. And now I'm thinking, let's just do it. Let's do it now. If we think it's the right thing to do, let's do it now. So we are um, expanding. We've got an online trend platform and we're going to expand that. We're going to make some investments into that and expand that out because for, for starters, um, one of the products that, that is our bread and butter product is a trend forecasting book and it's a physical book. It's got paper pages and fabric samples and all sorts of things in it, which for interior designers and retailers and brands that work in homeware, uh, they've always loved that. But of course, at the moment, they're all working from home and they're not going to post a book from one person to the next. So they need need something that enables them to be able to access the information at the same time and from their homes. So we have had um, a, a platform in place for about a year and a half, and we've, but we've only had that across the baby and kids industry. And our plan is really to start to expand that opportunity out. So as I say, it was already going to be in the plan, but we're going to bring that forward. And the other exciting thing is that although we already work internationally and we, we do a lot of our work via video conferencing, we do lots of presentations to clients over video conferencing anyway. Um, and we have a network of trend scouts that we engage with at least on a weekly basis where we connect with them remotely as well. But what has made me remember is that you know the world is our oyster in terms of who we want to work with and where our clients are based and I'm less worried than ever before about those overseas markets I think that um, we're really well placed to work with people overseas we've got a lot of clients in northern Europe and in America and we want to continue to have a, a greater presence really in those markets. Great. And uh, if you have time do you uh, do you follow any other business um, people or entrepreneurs that actually have inspired you on the way or do you, do you sort of 
keep yourself to yourself or oh I, I am fascinated by entrepreneurs and even if I didn't do what I do I still would follow entrepreneurs because I just think they're so interesting and I've got a really strong network in the northeast of people that I speak to I've got some people that I just greatly admire that luckily for me will meet me for a coffee and share their ideas and their inspiration people like Julie Drummond and Carrie Owers and Lisa Eaton and um, Laura Weaving so you know I have a really good network I'm not just all female either but my, my sort of female um, entrepreneurial network in the northeast is really important to me because mm -hmm. there aren't really that many of us around yeah. um, and you know I read a lot as well and I listen to a lot of podcasts so I feel like I soak up so much stuff but one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to is by Brené Brown and um, she produces a podcast every week and she speaks to lots of different inspiring people, not always entrepreneurs, sometimes scientists, you know, all sorts of different people. But I find that it's the stuff that she talks about often fuels so many conversations that I have with those of the female entrepreneurs who, who I know are also big fans of Brené Brown. But I also like to look at sort of entrepreneurial industries as well. I'm fascinated by the fitness industry. I think the fitness industry has gone through a massive transformation pre-lockdown and during lockdown where these people have been able to develop apps and online platforms and just reinvigorate their businesses to respond mm -hmm. to a completely new set of circumstances. So even the fitness industry for me, I look at it and I think, wow, that's an interesting concept. I love how they've been able to, to transform. I wonder if there's anything there that we could be learning from as a, as a trend agency. Mm -hmm something it could bring into the home yes definitely mm. um space is what you need sometimes just to sort of spread yourself out yes um and just lastly really for people starting up what advice would you give them what's your tip of the week for them my tip of the week is i would it's always 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 go narrow start with something that seems almost too small it seems almost too small for you to be able to make a living from. Go really narrow, as narrow as you dare, and just stick to doing that one thing better than anybody else possibly can. Um, and I learned that because when I first set up my agency, I thought, well, I've got to compete with all of these, you know, large agencies in Amsterdam and New York and Paris. And there's, there's really just me based in Newcastle. How am I going to be everything that they are? And of course, the truth was that I couldn't be everything that they were. I would have to do something that only I could do. And so I went really, really narrow yeah. and it terrified me. I went so narrow that I was thinking, really, home? Is that is there enough there? Will I get enough customers? Is the audience big enough? Have I got enough to say? Um, and actually, it was the best thing that I ever did because it enabled us from a tiny company to get real credibility because we only cared about one thing. And we've stuck really steadfastly to that. If it sits, you know, people phone us up I remember somebody actually saying to me what happens if you know Calvin Klein phone you up and asked to do a fashion forecast and I said I'll say no we'll say no it's not what we do we don't do fashion we just focus on everything to do with the way that people live at home and that was the best thing we could ever have done and I think that um I think that that would be my piece of advice is go as narrow as you dare great great stuff well thank you very much for speaking to me today it's been a really interesting chat thank you thank you so much